So Jay, I was reading Uncanny Axeman number 300, and there's a bit in there that's giving me some trouble. Yeah, what's up, Miles? Well, remember when Xavier telepathically manipulates the pitchfork-wielding villagers into thinking the X-Men have left? Right, because the villagers are still upset about the damage from the trial of Magneto. Exactly. But then Archangel seems shocked that the Professor would manipulate people's minds like that. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, do you even go here? See, that's what I thought. I know Xavier's done stuff like this before. Of course he has. Hell, this is pretty low-key for Professor X, actually, especially if you count the Silver Age. I mean, we're talking about the guy who completely wiped the Vanisher's mind. Yeah, but these are just an angry mob, just townspeople, not supervillains. These people are just scared. Oh, Silver Age Xavier didn't just mess with supervillains. I mean, one time he made Hank McCoy's parents forget... That Hank was a mutant? That Hank existed. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 218 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And once again, a reminder that we will very soon be appearing at Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest. That is on November 3rd in Las Vegas, Nevada at Clark County Library. It is a, an awesome free library show. You should come see us because we are delightful. And so is Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest. Two great tastes that go great together. I mean, I wouldn't recommend licking the library, or like us, at least, without uh, asking a lot of permission. Also, our dear friends, the, the PDX Broadsides are the musical guests this year, and they are wonderful, and um, you, should, you should stick around for them as well. They have a song that is all about Nathan Fillion's butt. As well they should. And a lot of other really good stuff. They are they are they are awesome. Actually, yeah, the lineup the lineup every year there is really good. Um, it's delightful. One of the things I love most about it is that it's a sh a show that consistently gets a really interesting mix of people. So you've got creators, but also there are comic scholars who are standard standardly there and on their lineup. Um, folks like us who do stuff about and around comics. Yeah, it's 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 really neat. And if you're in the area, it is well well worth checking out. In the meantime, we've got some X-Men for you. We have, in fact, a great big anniversary issue as part of the stuff we're going to be covering. I was thinking back to the last time we did this, the last time we did, you know, a zero zero at the end of its number issue. That was Uncanny X-Men number 200, The Trial of Magneto. And that feels like a lifetime ago. I mean, so much stuff changed between then and now. Magneto took over as headmaster. The New Mutants went through all kinds of shit. The X-Men went through, like, three different lineups. X-Factor did its own thing. And... I tried actually not to think too much about the trial of Magneto going into this because the trial of Magneto is a classic story. It's very, very good. This doesn't hold up. I don't know. I found a lot to love here, honestly. Like, and part of that, I'm sure, is that I was buying these comics as they came out. And so, like, when I got that foil-covered number 300 that was triple-sized, like, it was all I wanted out of life. Oh, no, there is a lot to love. It's just that it's no trial of Magneto. Well, I mean, what is? Aside from the trial of Magneto. Exactly. So, I think this might be our first uncanny episode after Executioner's Song. So, let's let's briefly go back to sort of how the team's set up, what's been going on. Miles, you want to lead us in? Previously on X-Men. The X-Men are currently divided into the blue team and the gold team. X-Men with no adjectives follows the blue team. Uncanny X-Men, which we're covering today, follows the Gold Team. The Gold Team consists of Storm, Jean Grey, Colossus, Iceman, Archangel, and Bishop. 
And the lines between blue and gold are really starting to break down, which I think is kind of cool. We'll get to that more later. What we won't get to more of is Executioner's Song. It's over. Hooray. Everybody's still kind of recovering. Most of all, Professor Xavier, who got shot right in the head. Yeah, that was a bummer. Totally was. So Miles mentioned that the last big, big X-Men anniversary issue was the trial of Magneto. And that's going to get referenced here as well. So let's, you know, when is the last time we saw Magneto? It it was what, like number X-Men number three or something? That's right. That was Chris Claremont's last issue before he left Marvel, X-Men number three. And in one through three of this second volume of X-Men, the X-Men fought Magneto and his acolytes, who were these mutants who saw Magneto as a kind of savior and were serving him like religious, well, acolytes. The leader of the Acolytes was a guy named Fabian Cortez. He was angry, he had a big ponytail, and he was secretly a member of the Upstarts. And he betrayed Magneto in exchange for some upstart points by blowing up Asteroid M with a plasma cannon satellite. Magneto and the Acolytes, other than Fabian Cortez, died, seemingly. But Magneto used the last of his power to help the X-Men escape, because Magneto, as we know, is never fully a villain or fully a hero. Aw, he's a mensch. Sometime after this Magneto adventure, the technopathic on-again, off-again X-Man Forge asked his one-time lover, Storm, to marry him, but then decided that Storm was already married to her job and left before she could even answer and have an opinion of her own. And he was a big jerk about it. Sure was. He doesn't deserve that rat mustache he has. Speaking of big jerks, the Russian government has gunned down Colossus's parents in cold blood, leaving Pyotr Rasputin, the sole guardian of his re-de-aged younger sister, Ilyana, who came back to the the X-Mansion with him following that story. Thankfully, there will be no more tragedy for the Rasputins ever, so we don't have to think about them too much. There absolutely will, because in the aftermath of Executioner's Song, I'm sorry I had to bring it up, Moira McTaggart has been studying a strange new disease that seems to only affect mutants. This will turn out to be the disease that was released when Sinister's assistant opened that mysterious and apparently empty canister in the Coda to Executioner's Song. It will be the legacy virus, and we are going to get our first taste of its effects this arc. I mean, like, figuratively, don't taste a legacy virus, especially if you're a mutant, or later on if you're a human. J- just stay away from it. Yeah, don't lick the fictional plague. If there's one lesson from this episode so far in its first few minutes, it's be careful what you lick. Um, also, while we're at it, since we haven't covered it very recently, don't masturbate with cactuses. That's how you get eye killers. So, let's talk about Uncanny X-Men. Number 298, which is called Don't Masturbate With It. No, it's called For the Children. Who should also not masturbate with cactuses. No, no one, one should. should. Master- don't masturbate with cactuses. Look, I feel like we covered this thoroughly. We covered a cautionary tale about its effects. Um, going to move on. Now, uh, Uncanny X-Men 298 is written by Scott Lobdell. It's penciled by Brandon Peterson, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Marie Javins. And we open with Professor X in his ready room, which is... A goddamn ridiculous Tron-style setup where he wears a black bodysuit covered with, like, neon lines and dots and watches just tons and tons of porn. I mean, it's actually the news, but that's just when we come into the ruddy room, maybe before he was watching porn. Who knows? Look, Professor X is a weirdo. We don't know what he's into. But, um, 
Yeah, no, he is he is watching the news and he is specifically watching a lot of news at the same time because his super mutant brain can apparently process a whole lot of information at once. Is that new? I mean, it's cool and I believe it, but has it ever been stated that he could do that before? Well, not precisely. It's been discussed that he has this phenomenal mutant brain, that his brain is remarkable, that it is, you know, unprecedented and stuff like that. What that actually means beyond telepathy is is sort of filed in the same category as what magnetism can do today. Ah, so basically whatever serves the story. Right. Now it's getting a little bit more limited here. And, and you know, this is actually like a brain thing, which which is better than it could be. But yeah, so... Yeah, that that varies periodically. Um, he is definitely a super genius, whether and to what extent that translates to parallel processing ability is inconsistent. Well, regardless, Xavier has been here in his porn den for a few days straight. He's really troubled by the increasing bigotry that's sweeping the nation. And that's a theme we're going to see in this era really hardcore. Not so much anti-mutant legislation being a big deal, although that's a thing as well, but anti-mutant sentiment among the masses, among the population being a big deal. And I want to take a moment here and say that this episode is dedicated to every fuckwit on the internet who insists that comics in the early 90s were apolitical. I see you, and you're wrong. Yeah, so this is... <laughs> prepare for some intensely both timely then and uncomfortably timely now political allegories. So Xavier is interrupted in his, his concern and his reverie um, by Bishop, who bursts in wanting to resign from the X-Men. He doesn't feel like he's assimilating effectively. Obviously, he's into different tactics. You know, he shoots first and asks questions later. The X-Men try not to shoot people these days. And Xavier shuts him down. He says, absolutely not, because you know what? Before this was a team, and even while it's a team, it is a school. You are here to learn. So doing badly and having a, having a steep learning curve doesn't disqualify you. You got to stay. I'm not accepting your resignation. And I want to say once again that early 90s Xavier is a great version of Xavier. I love this guy. I also love specifically that as Bishop leaves, Xavier has a little humph in the background. Like, Xavier being a little bit grumpy while being hopeful and kind and gently but firmly admonishing his students, I dig it. Oh, no, no. The thing that humph is about is even better. Because when Bishop first comes in, Xavier assumes that Jean or one of the other senior students sent Bishop in to check on him because Xavier's been in, in the news or porn or whatever den for multiple days straight. And he is vaguely disappointed and, and put out that, to learn that this is not actually the case. Aw, Chuck. Anyway, Bishop goes into the danger room to punch, I don't know, probably everything, while Storm and Xavier go to Central Park to get some secret files from policewoman Charlotte Jones. Charlotte Jones, as you may recall, was first introduced in X-Factor, and she is Angel's erstwhile lady friend and an NYPD de detective, who I, I believe was just recently promoted. Yeah, these files are about a bunch of mutants who died and had some kind of disease. That's going to be a theme that grows and grows. But this plotline is going to be interrupted by a psychic cry for help from a character we haven't seen in quite a long time. It's Sharon Friedlander. Do you remember Sharon Friedlander? I do. She was a nurse, and along with a cop named Tom Corsi, she got turned into um, a Native American by a demon bear, which was a deeply uncomfortable part of the demon bear saga, one of the greatest comic stories ever written. 
Yeah, nothing good has ever happened to Sharon and Tom, and that trend will be continuing throughout this story. I believe the last time we saw them, they were recovering from a fairly horrific psychic assault by um, Empath. Yeah, he made them have sex with each other until they almost died. Empath is freaking awful like i appreciate that he's still written as a person albeit an awful person he's not written as just like a full-on villain but let us never forget that empath is one of the worst human beings in the marvel universe i mean i think he's a pretty good object lesson in the fact that you can be a person and still a full-on villain exactly yeah but sharon was having a great time um not having any of those things happen to her until the acolyte showed up and punched her in the neck and killed her this is at a catholic school i believe that she's been working at and the acolytes have attacked it right this is a school called the mother of the sacred heart school um it's about 60 miles away from the xavier institute and sharon and we're gonna learn later tom as well has been working there um basically spying for xavier because there is a latent mutant among the student body and the Acolytes have found out about this too, and so they have shown up to claim this kid and to try to kill some humans, because the Acolytes, without Magneto's tempering influence, which is not a phrase you hear a lot, have gone full-on genocidal. They have, yeah, and in fact, when they pull the kid off of the bus, by which I mean they rip the bus open and kill a bunch of people in the building and pull the kid out, they notice that this child, while a mutant, also has Down syndrome, and they're prepared to just execute him immediately because he's not genetically perfect. And anybody who knows anything about Magneto knows that this goes so far in the opposite direction from anything he ever would have wanted, even at his worst. Well, and this is very explicitly and specifically... Nazi tactics, because the Nazis targeted and killed developmentally disabled people. Exactly, yeah. And some would say that this is laying it on a little strong, it's a little too on the nose, but this is a superhero comic, and superhero comics, I think, should do that sometimes. Like, there's nothing wrong with having a metaphor or an allegory that's very clear. Don't be silly, Miles. This is from the 90s, when all superhero comics were apolitical. <laughs> I say. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> but I do want to talk about the Acolytes because you know how we mentioned in the previously on that all of them died except Fabian Cortez? Well, they did. These are all new ones. We have their leader, at least the assault leader, who's a lady called... Okay, how the hell do you pronounce this, Jay? I'm thinking Unicione. That's the best I could find on the internet. Unicione? I'm not really sure. Now, apparently... According to the Mutant Empire X-Men prose novels, she's the daughter of Eunice the Untouchable, so at least that part's probably pronounced the same. Are those canon? Um, maybe? I don't know. I am super excited about covering them someday either way. We totally should. Dude, the X-Men, the X-Men prose... prose novels are, are at, in the, the parlance of, of our, our friend Chris Buckwild. They are an adventure. What's her power? She has a couple of powers. One is apparently to find mutants, like she's one of Ahab's hounds. And the other, she sort of creates this exoskeleton thing that usually manifests as some kind of a clawed demon around herself, but it's drawn all sketchy-like, like in these gashes of energy in the air. It actually reminds me a lot... Don't spoil... Don't, don't say the massive spoiler you're about to say. Okay, well, it uh, reminds me of a thing. Um, but... Her powers are badass. She's a terrible, terrible human being, as evidenced by the stuff we were just talking about. But 
The second member of the team, who's one we've met before, is awesome. Admittedly, she's kind of on the side of evil again. She is a lot. But still, we have Frenzy back. This is Joanna Cargill, one of the greatest ex-antagonists and characters ever. Yeah, she was from the old Alliance of Evil from early X-Factor days, including the first comic I ever remember uh, having read to me. Um, She is one of the few female black X-Men mutants, and she's big and strong, and she's really angry all the time, and she manages to make stupid costumes look awesome no matter which stupid costume she's wearing. Now she's in a different one, and I love her very much. She's also a super, super interesting character, and when she is written well and has a chance to really come into the fore... Um, is over time really terrifically developed. We also have the Kleinstocks, and they're these triplets who are real jerks, and they have the power to, I don't know, zap stuff, and also merge into one great big Kleinstock, at which point Station! Like Station, you're right, from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That being said, Station was very Station, and the Kleinstocks are not Station. Alas. So, they're attacking. Thankfully, the X-Men get a distress signal from Tom Corsi and come in to help. Tom Corsi is the school bus driver here, and thanks to his quick thinking, the kids are saved from the Acolyte's second plan of attack after neck-punching Sharon Friedlander to death, which is blowing up the entire school. The X-Men show up, and the X-Men show up with Bishop, who is finally getting the hang of battle banter. I'm so proud of him. Listen to this line. Gentlemen, I've seen the future, and you're not it. Oh, that is such a good burn. That is so good. Um, What is less good is that this incident is very, very visible, and specifically it attracts the attention of an old X-Men antagonist, Senator Robert Kelly. You remember him, the guy from Days of Future Past who the X-Men had to prevent the assassination of, the guy who tried to push through the Mutant Registration Act, kind of a great big jerk so far, his family was killed by mutants and it was really sad. Yeah, that guy. Now he wants the American public to wake up to the mutant menace. He is pulling out every stock line here, uh, criticizing the quote-unquote liberal media for tolerating mutants, exhorting listeners to think of the children. And as he does this, Xavier is watching him on TV, looking really sinister. Like, if this were, if we didn't know that this was a protagonist, um, the the man with the perpetual five o'clock shadow looking haggard and furious and staring at a screen as if he is about to swear vengeance would definitely be being introduced as a villain. I mean, I just figured he was really sad and disappointed and hadn't slept in days because of his porn room. So his porn room is full of disappointing porn? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh god, how depressing and weird would it be to, like, basically try to do the Xavier News thing, but with just all the porn? I mean, yeah, I I wouldn't recommend that. I think you'd lose your mind, and you know how Flaming Carrot became Flaming Carrot when you read too many comics? You'd become something else, and it would not be good. No, it would just, I feel like it would just get really depressing really fast. Well, speaking of depressing things, let's go to Uncanny X-Men number 299, Nightlines. Non-Kenny X-Men 299 is written by Scott Lubdell, penciled by Brandon Peterson, inked by Dan Panosian, and colored by Marie Javins. And it opens not with, um, with, with Kelly, but with Forge, who is working right now for Henry Peter Gyrick, whom you might, might recall as the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe. And Forge is checking out the crashed remains of Asteroid M. Except there's a problem. 
Asteroid M should have burned up in re-entry. I mean, you know, first it got zapped with that satellite laser, and then there was, well, the atmosphere. But there's still a whole lot of it left. So Forge's take is, somebody must have guided the remains through the planet's atmosphere using some sort of immense power. You mean like, magnetism? For example. Or, you know, talking to fish. Also, inside Asteroid M, in the throne room, there are the statue remains of a few of the acolytes, but there's also what appears to be the remains of Magneto. And this is this is just sort of a shell of his armor that, that seems like he's burst out of it. And it, it really looks like he molted and it's his shed carapace like a tarantula. I was thinking the same thing. I had that in my notes, too. So you think that maybe somewhere out there, there's like a slightly larger Magneto who's still damp from molting, and he has to spread out his new cape and his mullet in the sun so that they can dry before he can fly away? I think that is absolutely happening. Excellent. But that being said, despite the fact that this is hilarious, if you ignore the hilarious part, it's actually a really haunting image. There's like this seated, cracked armor that was worn by a person who was a symbol to the Acolytes, and there are these kneeling, statuified, in ways that we're not really clear why, group of Acolytes just sort of like praying to him as they died. It's got this real religious No, one of it. the Acolytes could, could, freeze, could freeze people. Oh, okay. Well, regardless, it's um, a really nice image, and I think that uh, Peterson does a good job. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really, really haunting. Less haunting, but certainly evocative of past events, Professor X is preparing for a television debate with Senator Kelly and also with a man named Graydon Creed, who is the founder of a group called Friends of Humanity. If you remember this guy's name, that's because he was first introduced technically in Strife's Strike File, but this is his first in-story appearance. And it's important to remember... We always see Xavier as a mutant rights activist. I mean, I think any of us who grew up reading in the 90s or watching the cartoon especially do. But back in the day, he was just more of a genetics expert when he was called into talk shows or whatever. It's really only been since Lila Shaney's Unity concert at the beginning of Executioner's Song that this has been his central deal. The exception of a Trask debate here and there aside. Well, there's one other notable exception that I want to talk about briefly, and it's in fact the last time I believe that he was involved in a televised debate about mutant rights. Yes. In a comic that I believe was extra canonical at, the, at that time, but has since been worked back into canon, that is God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah, the debate he has with Reverend William Stryker. It's an intense one, and that is also one of my very favorite portrayals of Xavier in that story in God Loves, Man Kills. That debate, as you may recall, and if you haven't read the comic or um, heard, I, I believe, our first winter giant size winter special, I will link back to that in the visual companion. But it is one of God Loves Man Kills is one of the best X-Men comics ever made. It's in a lot of ways, it's kind of a good introduction to the concept and feel of X-Men in one fairly simple and self-contained package. Um, that debate went really badly, both in terms of the public reception and in terms of getting blown up and kidnapped immediately afterwards. This debate is going to be somewhat different. So, first of all, we've got three participants. We've also got the moderator. This is um, Elton Kerr sitting in for Ted Koppel, and Claremont has so thoroughly trained me to assume that every name must be a reference that I spent like 20 minutes googling this dude, and, and I cannot figure him out. See, I just figured since he was a new minor character who had a name and a little bit of a concept to him that he was just going to die horribly, but uh, he doesn't here anyway. 
the professor, true to his old adages and his, his old arguments, first starts by pushing the largely irrelevant point that, no, no, there are good mutants and we should focus on them instead. But the surprise hero of this debate, which surprised the hell out of me when I came back to it, um, is Senator Kelly. Creed plays a card that reminds me very specifically, and I, I mentioned that this is this is in, in many ways a, a prescient comic, um, but this, this moment reminds me intensely of the 2008 vice presidential debate, and specifically the moment when, when Sarah Palin mentioned family hardship as if it were something that Joe Biden might not be familiar with, and you could see her lose the debate in that second, because for those of you playing along at home and unfamiliar with this, uh, Biden lost his wife and one of his kids in a really horrible car crash. And basically, you don't play the families, the well, my family's gone through hard times card with Joe Biden for a lot of reasons. And that's the primary one. And so here, Creed brings up that Kelly's wife was killed by mutants. And so Kelly should be more anti-mutant than anyone. And Kelly will have none of that shit. Mr. Creed, I must say I resent that you've used my personal tragedy for a clever sensational soundbite. Yes, my wife was killed in the midst of a mutant incident that included, among others, several X-Men. But there is no conclusive evidence that any X-Men in particular were responsible. It would be easy, comfortable, to paint me as a bitter, revenge-crazed man bent on punishing all mutants for the actions of a handful. I have not, and never will, advocate the blanket extermination of any race, mutant or otherwise. Genocide as a political agenda is as wrong today in countries like Bosnia and Somalia as it was in Germany over 50 years ago. While I am all for finding a way to control the more scurrilous genetically challenged, and I believe in that without equivocation, without hesitation, it is vital we do so without trampling on their rights as American citizens. This is a stance we haven't heard from Kelly before, and what we're going to see throughout the debate is that Creed's extremism is basically resulting in, in Kelly taking a much more moderate stance than he has previously. And also, apparently, he's done a lot of personal thinking. And the debate itself is has 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 a lot of really interesting moments, really interesting rhetorical moments, really interesting char character moments. Um, and I, I want to say, you know, the the the, the dimensions of, of Bosnia and Somalia and, and contemporary political events um, in the 90s when comics just never did that. No, no, those aren't political references. Those aren't even real places. Yeah, no, wait, what? Anyway, um, it's also worth noting, Miles, you mentioned that Xavier has never been known as a mutants, mutant rights activist before. Xavier is also still passing as human. And not Ted Koppel asks him whether, you know, the, the incident at the Lila Cheney concert being shot has, has made Xavier rethink his, his decision to advocate for a cause that isn't even his. You know, how does he feel about the idea of maybe being martyred for someone else's position? And Xavier basically deflects. Um, and it's a little disheartening. I mean, he's right that this is something that should matter to everyone, that you shouldn't have to be a mutant to care about mutant rights, fill in your own metaphor or allegory of choice here. But this is, this is something that I really wonder about, about what 
difference it would or could have made if Xavier had come out as a mutant earlier. I agree. Yeah, that would be a very interesting story right there. But I do have to say, given that he doesn't, I think he handles it about as well as he could. He really does have a stirring speech about how, no, how could you not care about a group that's being oppressed? Maybe you don't have AIDS. How could you not want to help people who do have AIDS? Maybe you're one demographic. How could you not want to help people who are another demographic? We're all human. And again, he mentions AIDS explicitly here, um, which I think is very important, partially because we are about to come into a very extended and very, very heavy-handed allegory for it that's going to be a major story element in X-Men comics for years to come, and partly because in the early 90s, AIDS was, I mean, there was conversation about it. It wasn't an entirely taboo topic at that point, but it was still risque to bring up in mainstream media. Yeah, and I mean, in the early 90s, there was still this enormous, enormous, almost universal association between AIDS and gay men. So really, Xavier's talking about compassion toward gay people as much as he's talking about compassion toward people with AIDS in the context of when this came out. Yeah, although you know Xavier would be the guy who brings up, well, actually, also there are children who get it through blood transfusions, which is a bad dodge. But um, anyway, another thing that really struck me in this, really throughout this, is how incredibly precisely Creed predicts the strategy and rhetoric of modern hate groups in 2018. Yeah, I love Xavier's description of Creed's Friends of Humanity here a grassroots hate group that cloaks its message of racial intolerance in respectability by hiding behind the First Amendment right to free speech. I mean, I'm just going to state the obvious right here, but he could be saying this in 2018 with the exact same phrasing and the exact same accuracy. About any number of groups, actually, which is really horrifying. Um, and... They wrap up that portion of the debate with everyone feeling very uncomfortable, but after the break, they are joined by Hank McCoy, um, whom not Ted Koppel describes as a marginally socially acceptable mutant spokesperson. After all, Hank is a respected scientist, and he was a full-time Avenger for a long time. And Hank gives us an exquisite demonstration in how to engage with a fascist in a televised debate. It is delightful. Jay? Elton, Senator... Professor, greetings, and a hearty Sieg Heil to you, Mr. Creed. Poke fun if you'd like, Dr. McCoy. I'm... A racist? It would take a more ignorant man than me to argue such a point. Though I confess I didn't recognize you, San, your hood and robes. Might I suggest a logo? A burning DNA symbol, mayhap. The moderator breaks in at this point. Um, Dr. McCoy, would you say your acceptance into the Avengers a few years ago was not indicative that the general public is... Catching up to the 20th century? Oh, my stars and garters, I hope so. But good golly, good gosh, Mr. and Mrs. America, taint no big deal. Why, statistically speaking, I bet if you looked close enough, some of your best friends are mutants. That's exactly my point. Mutants are trying to hide among the rest of humanity, doing who knows what amount of damage to our gene pool. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Heaven forbid we all keep using the same water fountains. Here's an idea. Why don't all us mutants start wearing scarlet M's on our clothes? Wait, I got it. Tattoos. You can stencil tattoos on our forearms. 
I refuse to sit here and be insulted by this... this freak! If you're leaving anyway, forgive me for fast-forwarding to my final rebuttal, as I say, on behalf of mutants everywhere. That is exactly how you debate a fascist. Kelly and Xavier leave the debate tentative buddies, because while they've got some ideological differences, and while Kelly is still concerned about the destructive potential of powerful mutants, Creed is very clearly the goddamn worst, and they can connect over that. And also, there's another hint that Kelly might not be quite as bad as he seems, or at least might be influenced in a more moderate direction. Jean gets a flash of thought from Kelly's aide, implying that the aide himself might be a mutant. And that the aide, or whoever this telepath is, says that Kelly's actually not so bad. Uh, who this aide is, is in fact a telepath. He is Noah Dubois. Um, he is actually in the employ of weirdo interdimensional law firm Landau, Luckman, and Lake, which is itself named after the original owners of famed British comic shop for Forbidden Planet. Um, he's not named in this issue, but that is who he is. Meanwhile, back in Upstart headquarters, or at least a place where a bunch of upstarts are hanging out, the various upstarts who are not Graydon Creed are feeling pretty unhappy that they have to work with this complete tool who not only is a terrible human being, but is a human being, not even a mutant. I mean, to be fair, they're all total tools, but they're also doing this for a brand new upstart prize. The Game Master has has switched... With, with no fanfare or any indication that there was anything previously as the status quo, from immortality and or leadership of the Hellfire Club to, well, everyone else has to work for you if you win. I kind of enjoy the cavalier way this plotline is handled. Like, the upstarts are still going to be a big deal for a while, but the writers just don't seem to give a shit about being consistent about what their purpose is. I really appreciate the extent to which it seems like the Game Master is just trolling these guys. I mean, I would. While the upstarts are busy there, Archangel swings by Sacred Heart to watch little Teddy, who was the, the mutant kid whom they rescued from Friends of Humanity, sleep. And um, he has a, a surprisingly pleasant conversation with the Mother Superior, who turns out to be really chill and pretty profoundly pro-mutant. And given all that Warren's been through, given all the angst that he's accumulated about how maybe he's irredeemable and he's just done such terrible things, this is kind of a beautiful segment. I really appreciated this part. Speaking of beauty... Um, Piotr Rasputin Colossus is once again drawing. Um, he hasn't drawn since his brother died, and I guess his parents' death brought that full circle? Eh? Yeah, he has, he has had a rough time of it, and that rough time is going to continue. Um, now, though, his, his art is interrupted by Ilyana, who's ill with something not yet identified, um, but she, she comes out to give him a little homemade heart-shaped card. I am so pre-sad, and we haven't even gotten to that issue yet. Oh. Yeah, man, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make Jude the obscure obscure jokes again, but I'm also probably gonna cry. Seriously. So let's cut away to somewhere else, which is Harry's Hideaway. You remember how it got rebuilt? Yay! It's rebuilt enough to be patronized by a bunch of the X-Men who are watching Beast be well, Beast on TV and toasting some of their fallen friends. What's interesting here, though, is that Bishop thinks he recognizes the waitress, who we've never seen before. Way later, that's going to be revealed as a woman named Fatale, who's an agent of Dark Beast from the Age of Apocalypse, who after Age of Apocalypse would go back in time to hang out in Earth-616 and do a bunch of evil stuff because comics. Dark Beast, we will note, does not exist yet. Or rather, he will have always existed because he's the one that set Fatal in play. Let's not worry too much about time travel. We still have a whole issue to get to. I mean, 
worrying about time travel is kind of our jobs, but you're right that it's not immediately relevant here, because this is only a brief respite before the X-Men take the fight to the rema remaining acolytes who are holed up in France. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 300, because on multiples of 100, the X-Men go to France. Yeah, they did last time too, it's true. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by John Romita Jr., and also Brandon Peterson, but John Romita Jr. is going to be taken over for a while. Inked by Dan Green, Dan Panosian, Al Milgram, and colored by Steve Buccoletto and Glynis Oliver. And originally, Uncanny X-Men number 300 was going to be the climax of Claremont's run. It was going to have the Shadow King come back and kill Professor Xavier, and then Magneto come to permanently lead the X-Men. Everything was going to lead up to that, this is a very, very different story, obviously. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to say this couldn't be further from that, because I'm sure it could theoretically be, but it's it's pretty far. Now, I mentioned that John Romita Jr. is taking over on art, and I really like it. When I was a kid, I had a, a really hard time with his increasingly blocky, sort of rectangular person style with lots and lots of lines everywhere. But I kind of dig it, and I think a lot of that is Buccoletto and Oliver's colors. Just the vibrancy really emphasizes just the superheroic nature of Ramita's art. That's funny, because when I think of the way you drew the X-Men as a kid, that's definitely the style that I see most in, in you know, Kid Miles' stuff. I didn't have nearly that many lines. But we have a great cover, too. It's Cyclops, Wolverine, Storm, Jean, and Bishop charging forward, being awesome X-Men. And the background is silver foil with lots of little tiled Circle X X-Men logos. And when I was a kid, this was the coolest thing in the goddamn universe. It's also, like, triple length. You get a lot of bang for your extra buck here. So... That bang starts actually with a bamf, because Nightcrawler has been called telepathically by Xavier to come help by himself, and he heads to France where he finds Forge covered in just all of the grungy John Romita Jr. technology. Freaking all of it. And Forge is here to make a booster unit to help Cerebro penetrate this sort of psychic mutanty Cerebro dead zone. But as soon as Nightcrawler shows up, Forge pieces out. He does not want to deal with the X-Men. He has just gotten so bitter after everything that's happened. Mostly, I think, the whole him being a total dick and screwing up his marriage proposal to Storm, but also all of the other assorted tragedies. He's gone. A group of mutants risking their lives to create a world where everyone is treated equally? It's the stuff of dreams, Kurt. And dreams are for people that sleep. That's such a Forge line. It's interesting here that Nightcrawler is the only member of Excalibur called to help here, because while he certainly does help in the contents of the issue, I, can't, I couldn't really think of a specific reason he needed to be here other than, wait a minute, with him here, and with Wolverine and Cyclops on loan from the blue team, this is basically the core all-new, all-different X-Men team. I mean, minus Banshee, but everybody always forgets him. You know, we have the team. Speaking of people always, characters people always forget, Miles, also Thunderbird? Well, right, but I'm, by core, I mean the ones who were that team for the longest. Otherwise, you'd also have to throw in Sunfire, and then the whole thing would just be him quitting every second panel. Aw. Bishop, you know, Bishop tries to fill those shoes. It's not his fault Professor Xavier stops him. <laughs> oh, man, good point. Maybe Bishop and, and Sunfire would get... No, Bishop and Sunfire would not get along at all. It would be great. Sunfire doesn't get along with anybody. Yeah, it's true. Anyway... 
Elsewhere in France, the Gold Team and Cyclops and Wolverine and Xavier are off looking for Moira McTaggart, who apparently is missing. We don't know why yet. She just is. They're looking for one of her family's homes that happens to be in France that is also on fire and collapsing, which presumably it wasn't before. She's not there, but then the angry French mob from the cold open shows up and tells them to get lost because the X-Men were part of a lot of chaos back in number 200. And so Professor Xavier telepathically makes the mob unable to see the X-Men. He controls all their minds. Wolverine questions Xavier about this, well, Wolverine thinks unprecedented turn, and Xavier simply replies, Desperate times. Desperate measures. Or, you know, Silver Age measures. No, this is also modern age measures. This is like the least meddling and inappropriate use of telepathy ever. This is something you see other characters do continually in the 90s, in the aughts, in the teens. Like the idea that, yes, telepaths just mask their presence or make them appear to, themselves appear to be other people. And that's treated as an ethically neutral use of telepathy consistently in the comics. True, true. But... Xavier, at this point, has a nice little flashback reminiscing about running his original X-Men plans by Moira McTaggart. Interestingly, Xavier already had some notes on some of the all-new, all-different team, Colossus and Storm and Nightcrawler, but wanted to keep round one of the X-Men simple by just starting domestically. Of note, he does not mention Vulcan, Darwin, Sway, and Terra from X-Men Deadly Genesis, and that's probably for the best. Well, those were Moira's team anyway. Uh, true. That's very true as well. One of the other things from this flashback is Moira pointing out to Xavier that his old friend Magnus, Magneto, is active again. And indeed, Magneto's shadow is going to be all over this. And as we lead up to fatal attractions, well, uh, we'll, we'll find out why. Meanwhile, in a French abandoned monastery, the Acolytes are watching Xavier's flashback on TV because they have a member named Milan who has like an uh, Avatar Aang-styled arrow on his forehead, and his power is that he can turn other people's thoughts into electrical impulses to put them on TV, which is so narratively convenient for a comic, and I love it. Wait. First of all, thoughts are already electrical impulses. Well, then it's not very hard, I guess. Okay, but still, I just I just feel like it's important to acknowledge that in this context. Legit. So, who are the current acolytes? I know we saw Fabian Cortez before when they attacked the school, but um, we've got some new members here. Well, we have a very angry redhead named Amelia Vogue. She'll be a really big deal later. She has a history with Xavier. We'll find out some in this issue and a lot more later. She is mainly known for being a super, super jerk. We also have Seamus Mellencamp, who's sort of like a scary demon lizard man. Um, and I really want him to be called Seamus Lizard Mellencamp because of John Cougar Mellencamp. But the comic does not oblige me, and that's very sad, and I don't want to deface it because it's a comic. You don't, you don't do that. We also have a young man named, well, we don't know what he's named. He's just referred to as Neophyte, which of course is a word that means essentially beginner. Later comics are actually going to assume that his name is Neophyte. I don't think that's real. I actually really enjoy that he's so low rank that nobody ever calls him by his actual name. I think that really works to show how sort of imperious Cortez and Vote are, but what can you do? Oh my god. I just, Cortez is the guy who just got really into Fight Club. Oh, God. Yeah, he, he would, wouldn't he? And he wouldn't understand that it's actually a critique of masculinity and patriarchy. He would think it was like a celebration of it. He'd be super into the idea of Project Mayhem. Man, Fabian Cortez, what a douchebag. You give the, back that ponytail right now. You don't deserve it. <laughs> 
Well, anyway, the Acolytes have indeed kidnapped Moira McTaggart because they know from X-Men number one through three, that's of course volume two of X-Men, that Moira messed with Magneto's genes to try to make him a good person back when he was temporarily de-aged into a baby, and they know that that same technology can be used to mind control people, and they want to mind control a bunch of mutants who would not otherwise join them to join their ranks because they're basically a religious organization, and to them, it's clear that God, which is to say Magneto, would want this. I'm sorry, I'm just taking a minute to absorb everything you've said in the last 30 or so seconds. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. The great thing about podcasts is you can hit the 15-second rewind button and just listen to parts like that again. I hope I actually said it right. Now I'm paranoid. But we're just going to press bravely on. You are right. No, it's just, we talk about this so much that sometimes I start to take its level of goofiness for granted. And then a moment like that will come across and, and just sort of knock me straight out of the narrative. And I'll just be sitting there being like, fucking comics, man. Fucking comics. Well, Moira McTaggart actually grabs Cortez by his undeserved ponytail. She's weak from being tortured by the strange bubble thing that she's in. But she's not too weak to talk about how she knows that Cortez was the one that killed the Acolyte's Messiah. Cortez was the one that killed Magneto. And Cortez obviously is concerned that this might threaten his his power over the current Acolytes, so he tells Milan to strip out the rest of her memory and discard whatever empty shell is left. However, the Neophyte, who may or may not actually be named Neophyte, has concerns about this, and Moira has noticed his suspicions, and while Cortez is out of the room, she talks to him. She tells him, you know, she, he, you know kiddo, you know Cortez is lying. You gotta do something, but the kid just keeps on repeating formal scripture and um, ab about you know Cortez's version of what happened in X Men Three. I really love that a comic that we read that didn't happen that long ago, like, has been formalized, has become that level of legend to these people. It really, it, I don't know, it just shows how impressive and how big of a deal Magneto was. Well, quickly, too, because we know that the comics we've been reading have become legend by Bishop's time. That's true. That's true. He invokes various oaths that Hank McCoy came up with and stuff, or at least that were attributed to Hank McCoy. The X-Men, meanwhile, are flying in on the Blackbird. While they do, Colossus calls the mansion to check in on Ilyana, who's still sick. And Colossus is in such a bad place right now. And fair enough, he's lost so much of his family. He won't let Iceman cheer him up. He's down. All he's got left is Liliana, and she's sick, and oh god, okay, we're not going to get to that quite yet. But the X-Men land, and they meet Nightcrawler, who's waiting for them. And this is the first time since X-Men freaking 211 that Nightcrawler and Storm have reunited, and they used to be so close, and there's a great big hug, and it's wonderful, and, and Storm uh, knows that Nightcrawler's on Excalibur with Kitty, and asks, Tell me, have you been taking care of my kitten? Your, your kitten? says Nightcrawler, and then immediately gets really, really anxious that maybe there was a cat he was supposed to feed and he forgot to, and it's not okay. Oh, no, it's okay. She's, she's talking about Kitty, though. It's adorable, and yeah, we have our most commonly known all-new, all-different team together again. It's really heartwarming amid all of the darkness and tragedy. Aw. Speaking of darkness and tragedy, let's go back to the monastery. Back at the monastery, Cortez is arguing with a hologram of Game Master. Um... And Cortez's concern is if the Acolytes find out that he killed Magneto, he's going to lose his followers. And in fact, exactly that happens because the neophyte has come after him to spy on him to see if Moira was telling the truth and discovers that in fact she was. 
And it becomes clear very quickly as Cortez accuses the Games Master of setting this up, and the Games Master basically just says, well, yeah, of course, otherwise, what's the point? That the Games Master probably feels about Cortez the same way we do. Yeah, no one likes Fabian Cortez. Cortez uses his mutant ability to amplify other people's mutant abilities to basically throw the neophyte out of the castle because the neophyte can phase through solid rock sort of like kitty pride but not exactly and now he does that and also flies through the air about a mile away and lands in some mud where a nice human lady helps the kid up she doesn't know that he's a mutant she doesn't care and this baffles him he thought that humans hated mutants that's what he'd been taught by the writings of magneto that cortez had given him the implication here is that this cult has existed for at least this kid's lifespan. So that would be he's easily a teenager um, or in his early 20s instead of just having recently been founded by Magneto. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Actually, this kind of works for me. I think it's kind of new convert syndrome. I mean, if he was a disaffected mutant for whatever reason, Cortez took him in, gave him a way to look at the world that really reinforced the fact that he had all of this pain and deserved better. Like, I can see him taking it in and memorizing it and internalizing it and having it almost overwrite his identity even in a really short period of time. So I totally buy this. And if he if his initial disillusionment with Cortez wasn't enough, his new human friend is immediately murdered by Cortez's guard. Cortez's personal guard are the acolytes who look a little less generic. We have Senyaka, who is mostly known for having a whip and also having a really sweet action figure made of him in the real world. We have Spore, who's the furry ape guy, and we have Katu, who's got a great big beard and one robot arm and one just robot shoulder. Man, Spore, which is spelled S-P-O-O-R, by the way, um, really lost the codename lottery. Could have been worse. Could have been, like, scat or foul leavings or something. I mean, you're talking on, you know, all on roughly the same page of the thesaurus. But anyway, the X-Men show up, um, kick, the per- kick Cortez's guards' asses, and save the kid, who immediately has a massive crisis of, con- of conscience for fairly obvious reasons. And Xavier explains, hey, even Magneto, for a while, walked another path, a path of harmony between humans and mutants. Does this kid have the strength and the bravery to do the same? And Xavier is very, very convincing, especially when there are crises of conscience going on. Yeah, he's 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 a very skilled orator, and he is very, very persuasive. So, the X-Men assault the monastery, led there by the kid, and there's lots of punching and zapping and punching and zapping, and it's a great big fight, we don't need to describe very much, but I do want to point out that Iceman and Frenzy have their first rematch since early X-Factor. This time, though, Bobby very much gets the upper hand because he's been practicing new ways to use his powers. Ever since Mikhail Rasputin taught him that he could fully turn into water, that he could fully turn his body into ice, he's realized that just doing ice slides all the time and making dad jokes about cold things while throwing snowballs. That was just the tip of the iceberg. I I did it too. And now he can do things like cover himself in big, craggy, spiky ice armor that John Romita Jr. loves to draw. He will get an additional level up of this kind a while later when he is possessed by Emma Frost. But this is even now a significant step forward for him. And it's enough to let him actually take on Frenzy, which he really couldn't before. And Jean Grey cuts loose against the indestructible Seamus Lizard Mellencamp, sending him flying, talking about how 
This is her worst nightmare, just being herself and letting loose. And this reminds me very much of that scene from the Justice League cartoon where Superman is fighting Darkseid, talking about how he always has to hold back, but this time he doesn't. And it's so satisfying in both cases. After doing this, Jean takes Moira McTaggart back to the jet so she can get patched up because she's in real bad shape. And Xavier finds Amelia Vote praying to Magneto's helmet. We find out from Xavier talking to her that Amelia was actually intended to be one of his original students, but she said she didn't want to get involved in this mutant-human relationship, conflict, whatever. She wanted to be left alone. She points out that, yeah, that was before her whole family was killed by humans, and she leaves. And we're going to find out, like we alluded to before, a lot more about the nature of their relationship. It's actually much more complex than this, and it's really fascinating. For now, though, this is just a little tease, and Xavier getting to find out that, wait a minute— if Magneto's helmet survived, huh. Maybe his head did too. And like, you know, it was attached to a body. We're not talking the brain that wouldn't die kind of stuff, although that would be pretty hilarious. We might be talking the brain who wouldn't die kind of stuff. I don't know about you, Miles, but I remember Cameron Hodge. Oh, well, that's a good point. At the top of the monastery, Bishop faces Cortez, who's attempting to escape and leave all of his followers to die Again. again. And Bishop, again, does the whole, yeah, in history in my time, you're not mentioned. So guess what that means, motherfucker? And it's just as satisfying here as it was before. Probably more so because, like, we really hate Cortez. Except it stops being satisfying because Cortez wins the fight and gets away. Yeah, he burns out Bishop with his own powers, which is Cortez's deal. But at that point, as Cortez is attempting to escape... The neophyte shows up and sucker punches him, and then Logan just straight up fucking stabs him in the him. Good. Right? The good guys have won. They've saved Moira, they've beaten up all the acolytes, and the neophyte, well, he's pretty sure he knows what comes next based on what he's heard from the teachings of Magneto, as told by Fabian Cortez. I suppose you will interrogate me, subvert my will, and enlist me in your cause? Xavier replies, If the day comes you choose to stand with us, it must be your own decision. And the neophyte says that he'll consider it, and on a parting note, tells Xavier, You and Magneto are both great men, Professor Xavier, and your dreams might be more similar than either of you realize. And this is such a nice eulogy for Magneto, like, seeing his ideals highlighted by seeing them contrasted to the way his followers have interpreted those ideals, it really makes us remember who Magneto was at his best, how even much of the shitty stuff he did, by no means all, but much of the shitty stuff he did, there was really a good heart at the center of that. There really was a message of, in a way, tolerance. Not in every way, but in some of the ways that matter. Magneto was a complex, gray person, not just this genocide-promoting, terrible savior that Cortez interpreted him to be just so that Cortez could get a bunch of followers. God damn it, I hate Cortez. Yeah, Cortez is a big jerk. So I have, I have a ponytail theory, by the way. You mentioned that Cortez doesn't deserve his ponytail. And we've talked before about Shatterstar's hair. And I wonder if Shatterstar collects the ponytails of the undeserving and incorporates them into his own. That seems like something Shatty Buns would do. So the story's not quite over yet because we've got an epilogue. Fabian Cortez, who is exceptionally naked, is being painfully teleported away from the hospital he'd been recovering in 
by Amelia Vode. After which, he's contacted by Gamesmaster, who says that all of Cortez's upstart points are being taken away, the points he got for killing Magneto and the points he thought he got for killing Bishop. Which at least theoretically means that either Magneto is still alive or the Game Master is just changing the rules again for fun. Spoiler, Magneto is still alive. And I gotta say, seeing Cortez rage against a giant holographically projected bald guy head with weird things on the side like he's freaking Lobot from Empire Strikes Back, while Cortez is only wearing his ponytail and some convenient positioning, is hilariously schadenfreude I just want terrible things to happen to Fabian Cortez, and I consider myself to be a very nice, kind person, but not to this guy. Well, you know, if, if you're if you're gonna wish ill on someone, might as well wish ill on a fictional character. That's also probably true. Elsewhere, Professor Xavier and Moira McTaggart are looking into this genetic disor- disorder, which they realize it is, or this genetic disease anyway, that's been targeting more and more mutants. It uh, hit Moira's patients in Genosha in an X-Factor issue we haven't covered yet, but it's hitting more and more people. And Moira, as she des- she's describing it, happens to use the word legacy, which sends Xavier spiraling right back to Strife Strikefile and also to the single greatest typo ever to appear in an X-book when Xavier refers to the time-lost villain, Strife. I mean, I guess that too. But yeah, there's this kind of great panel of Xavier's head in profile and all of the text from Ilyana Rasputin's entry from Strife Strike File, which, as you may remember, is weird. Like, why would Ilyana be there? Why does Strife keep talking about his legacy? And of course, that means it's time for a page turn to cut right over to Colossus tucking Ilyana Rasputin in, tucking her Bamf doll under her hand, smoothing her hair, and getting up to walk away... As in the next room, Moira says that while she hasn't been able to track down the exact mechanism of the disease, she has been able to determine one thing, which is that it is invariably terminal. That is a hell of a dark way to end an anniversary issue, but it's also a hell of an appropriate way to lead into the next, admittedly, kind of dark era of X-Men. But you know what's not dark? Our listeners, who are great and who have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Do Mr. Sinister and or Emma Frost have British accents? Mr. Sinister is at least nominally a Victorian gentleman, and Emma seems to have an affectation at times, but I don't think either have it consistently. The answers are yes and no, respectively. Mr. Sinister is, in fact, British and presumably has a British accent, at least when he's not putting on another one for disguise purposes or whatever weird sinister reasons he has. Emma Frost... When she speaks with a British accent, um, it's an affectation. Emma Frost is from Boston. Um, speaking of, of accents, I should also note that she is not the only X-Men member, the only X character with a canonically fake accent. There is also Phantom X, who speaks with an, a ridiculous Pepe Le Pew fake French accent. Yes, he does. Plus Gambit, who's you know kind of questionable on that front. Another listener on Tumblr asks us, What's the deal with Rogue's powers these days? I know that for a while she just had her absorption abilities, but she had control over them, and then she absorbed Wonder Man and gained his powers, lost control of her own again, but now Wonder Man is free and Rogue has the old Ms. Marvel powers again? And in the Rogue Gambit miniseries, she could touch bare skin with no problems, but now in Mr. and Mrs. X, she can't? I'm really confused here. You and me both, Anonymous. 
Okay, let me see if I can go through this quickly. So the first time Rogue lost her powers for a while was in Claremont's Extreme X-Men run for very complicated reasons we're not going to go into. But then those powers came back on their own in Chuck Austin's X-Men run. But at that point, Rogue didn't have the permanently previously absorbed Carol Danvers powers, you know, flying at super strength. After that, a while later, she perma-absorbed a dying legless Sunfire's heat powers. Now, Xavier eventually helped Rogue learn to control her powers and bring back previously absorbed ones after it became clear that they those powers just plain never fully developed when Rogue was a teenager. And that was awesome, but then the Scarlet Witch had to undo that whole part to prevent Rogue from losing her mind. So no more control over who she could touch, no more calling back old powers— except for Wonder Man's powers, because she absorbed Wonder Man, like, not just his powers, but him, the energy that was him. Later on, Wonder Man was released from Rogue when Rogue kissed some Spider-Man-looking guy due to said Spider-Man-looking guy, Deadpool's healing factor something-something-something. Now, as for when Rogue got the Ms. Marvel powers permanently back, I, I, I don't actually know. Um, I'm sure more research would help with that, but we had to record an episode. As for Rogue and Gambit... And uh, Mr. and Mrs. X. In Rogue and Gambit, Rogue was getting her powers siphoned away by the villain of the series during it, which is how she had such good control over them and how they were dying down over the course of it. And in Mr. and Mrs. X, she canonically has access to a power inhibitor collar, which she's been using liberally. And I think she had that power inhibitor collar at the beginning of the Rogue and Gambit miniseries as well for purposes of, you know, fucking. Yeah, it, it's... I'm I'm surprised that doesn't come up more often, but yeah, presumably they're 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 canonically unpleasant to wear, and presumably do some kind of long-term neurological damage if you keep them on for too long. So uh, don't do that. The things we do for love. Now we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and support at some levels comes with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Let's see what the angry Claremontian narrator has to say. You thought you could face. Eben in a civilized debate, Vlad Duran, that the rules of standard discourse would protect you from bad faith arguments and rhetorical fallacies. But you failed to account for the sheer ruthlessness of the fanatic or the importance of well-applied and camera-friendly makeup. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Miles will be out of the virtual studio, so I'm going to put up my feet, mix fancy cocktails, and polish my best Boston British accent with writers Seanan McGuire and Leah Williams for Emma Frost Appreciation Night. (laughs) 